From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. Okay, folks, get your bird books out. The first call may be an assembly call. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. I hardly think a few birds are going to bring about the end of the world. Resound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find all over the world. We sift through as much recorded material as we can find, whether it be on the air, the internet, at an audio festival, or even a friend of a friend's mother's, uncle's, hairdresser's, cousin's, nephew's opus they put together in a studio in the garage. We take the best and most interesting of what we find, and we play it for you each week on Resound. award-winning stories, both about searching. One about a stroke victim searching for words, and another about a bird lover obsessed with searching for the South Island Kokako, a bird in New Zealand that everyone else thinks is extinct. Plus, we search for bird calls in the urban jungle. Stay with us. According to his daughter, Stephen Goff was an outspoken father, the kind who loved to engage in political debate and win. He was also a successful salesman making a lot of money. Then at the age of 48, he had a stroke that left him largely unable to speak. His condition is called aphasia. After years of relearning how to communicate with her father, Teresa Goff took out her microphone to talk to him about his condition, their relationship, what the stroke took away, and what it offered him in return. Teresa's portrait is called In So Many Words, and in 2004, it won the Radio Impact Award from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Let's listen. This is one of the sounds of my father speaking. My father can't speak like he used to. Nothing. He used to talk. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. He used to talk a lot. Yeah. He used to pin me in the corner of the kitchen and force me into political debates I didn't want to have. 
Yeah. My father was always right. Right wing and right in your face. On a March morning nearly nine years ago, I got a phone call at 5 a.m. My dad was in the hospital. He'd had a stroke. We didn't know what to expect while we waited for him to open his eyes. When he finally did, he looked up and said two words. Let's go. Let's go. He couldn't go anywhere, though. He was paralyzed on his left side. The paralysis lasted less than a day. What remains is aphasia. So you're writing down aphasia? Okay. Um. And you wrote down stroke. My father writes a lot. He usually carries a pen and a pad of paper, but when he forgets, he writes words in the air with his finger. When you're facing him and he's writing, you have to read backwards, as though you're looking in a mirror. Meaning is suspended in midair as his finger leaves a letter hanging, then moves to the next. This is an exercise of the mind, an exercise in patience, concentration, a lesson in communication. In order to hear what my father says, you have to read him. Society. <laughs> Steve. Equals feeble mind. His words, his facial expressions, his gestures form the sentences he can't speak. To make these sentences audible, you have to use your own voice. So you're saying that in society, when you went out, people yes. treated like you like you had a feeble mind. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a feeble mind? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so everything goes on perfectly fine in yes. your mind. When my dad lost his voice, he lost his marriage. I can't do. His friends. They're sort of moving your hands back and forth like it's like you're balancing something. His way of being in the world. Aphasia. Twiddling your thumbs, you have your n eyes narrowed. And you wrote isolate. There are no you're sort of putting your head down saying no. No. You think people feel isolated? Yes. In many ways, the way that we interact as a society and a culture, it all hinges on language. Yes, sure. Yeah. So if you have aphasia, where do you fit into that? You're smiling. With a few spoken words and a pad of paper, my father's learned a new language. That language has become his life. And he has become a zealot and an advocate. I can't do. So do you think people feel paralyzed oh, without yes. people to speak to? Yes. Your body isn't paralyzed. Like physically oh, yes. you're fine. Yeah. But without a community of people to speak to, yeah. you feel paralyzed. Yes. Yeah. Unless people with aphasia have someone to translate their thoughts into words what speech-language pathologists call a communication partner. They're trapped. My father figured this out through his own silent struggle. How long did it take us to talk about it to the extent where you felt that you were being listened to? Um, oh, um, 
up there. Three years ago. Yes. Yeah. So you spent five years with aphasia. Yeah. With people not even acknowledging that it had yeah. happened. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dad. Yeah, oh, good. It was hard to accept that my father couldn't speak, even though so much of what my brother, sister, and I remember about him doesn't have words. Hiking, playing baseball, swimming, water skiing. But still, there are great big holes. Things we'll never hear again. Like his singing. He used to love to sing. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way I can't wait to look in the mirror Cause I get better looking each day the songs he sang, what he said, it all represented who he was. Thankfully, he still has a few words to sum up who he is. Good. I love you, you know? When he first had the stroke and needed me to listen, I was too overwhelmed by fear, sorrow, resentment, so many emotions all at once. I felt as though I had lost him, not just his voice. It wasn't until he started using us, his family, as sounding boards, mirrors for facial expressions and gestures. It wasn't until he started to speak through us that I understood he hadn't gone anywhere at all. Now he's sharing what he's learned, that communicating with aphasia takes more than one voice. Ironically, his approach is much the same as it was when we argued politics. Although he can't pin anyone to the wall anymore, he still demands the last word. He still craves an audience, and he's found one. He's talking about aphasia, traveling the speaker's circuit at colleges and medical centers. He thinks this is very funny. <laughs> Good. Most important to him, though, is the aphasia program he started in Brantford, Ontario, where he lives. He came up with the idea for an aphasia center three years ago, and he went around to hospitals with a handout. Strangely enough, the fact that he couldn't speak helped him get his message across. And so did his persistence. This guy, come on. Jan Roadhouse, a speech-language pathologist, found his story compelling. You just wrote down, Jan. Spark plug. Yeah. So she's the spark plug, what are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Jan and my father worked together to write a proposal to find funding. The aphasia program started in November 2001. It runs twice a week at the Adult Recreation Therapy Center in Brantford. This is a place where volunteers act as communication partners and people with aphasia talk without fear of being judged. Just talk. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just talk. I, I, I can't talk to nobody on the outside. I can't talk to my wife. <laughs> right? She gets all mixed up. Um, it's company. Yeah. It's good. Get together. It's company. Some people with aphasia have problems speaking. Couldn't speak. 
frustrated. <laughs> yeah. Or trouble understanding. Yes, it's true. Yeah. All mixed up. <laughs> yeah. Or difficulty reading. Can't remember reading. Forgot. While others struggle with writing. Yeah. Any combination of confusion can exist. The area and degree of difficulty varies from person to person. What is gone and what remains of the person's language ability depends on many factors, but most importantly, on the amount and location of damage to the brain. Aphasia changed the way my father speaks, and it's impaired his reading. But the biggest adjustment has been to his perspective. He sees the world differently now. He has to. Me. You were number one in sales? Yeah. You were a sales manager? Yes. Yeah. Um, you made a lot of money? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My father made $150,000 a year when he was working in sales. Now, he gets a disability pension of $890 per month. So all of a sudden, you yes. had this stroke, and for the first three years of your stroke, you were trying to sort out maybe yes. the difference between that type of life. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Am I getting closer? Yeah. yeah. So you're, Thank you. Good. Would go. All right. So you're trying to sort out the difference between that kind of life where you were always number one and, and whatever you wanted to do, yes. you could just accomplish it. Yes. And then here you were. Nothing. You put your hands out and you just said nothing. What do you mean nothing? No speech. No read, so you couldn't read. Nothing. Did you used to like to speak? Yes. <laughs> Did you used to like to read? Yes. <laughs> The last book he read before the stroke was Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy. He was in his first year at Queen's University, studying theology. After the death of his uncle George, his surrogate father, my dad decided that his life needed changing. He felt he needed to follow a path of honesty and integrity. He'd never been there before, something he freely admits. He was 48 years old, at the beginning of a new life, when he woke up that morning in March, everything changed. Aphasia blew up the rules by which my father had lived his life. Before his stroke, my dad had never felt vulnerable. And if he did, he'd override the feeling with arrogance and ego. What allowed him to run people over in conversations was the belief that if they were not quick of wit enough, not brave enough to match his bravado, their fate was their own. Their weakness, not his responsibility. Uh, there, uh, I can't, you know. Now my dad can't force his way into conversations. I can't, do you? He can't shut the world out with words. For a long time, he only had two. You just sort of took your hands yes. and you're, you're pulling them apart as though you're making something longer. Yes. 
yes. trying to pull those two words into more yeah. words. Thank you. How'd you do it? You pointing to your head because it was all inside. Yes. I can't do, but there are, you know. So I So I Steve, then you just drew a line. Then a line above it. And then a line above it. And then a line above it. And then a line above it. With every line my father draws, I think of the time he must have sat silent, putting himself into context, pulling himself back together. And now you've drawn a pyramid with strong at the top. Yeah. So you feel like you built it back yes. up. Yeah. Do you feel like you had to use different building blocks? Well, yes. Yep. What were the building blocks you used this time? Um, Practice. Image? Yes. What kind of image? Imagination. Yes. You had to really... Yes. You had to think beyond your Uh, inability to speak. To see himself as a work in progress, my father had to be interrupted. Without words, he was left in a place where self-esteem mattered more than self-importance, and he had to accept that there were things beyond his control. Aphasia. You've learned to love aphasia. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So... You're saying in the acceptance of it. Yeah. Not sure. Sure. Accepting it. Yes. I'm going to keep throwing out words and you tell me if yeah. I'm right, okay? Understanding. Yeah. Yielding. Yes. Yeah. Wow. What, what made you able to sort of move towards loving something that stole, took, I mean... It took something away from you. Yeah. Do you feel that it gave something back? Yeah. What did it give back? It gave back love. Yeah. How did it give back love? I love you. (laughs) Good. You feel like it's changed your life? Oh, sure. In a good way? Oh, yes. I think people would have such a difficult time understanding that without having known you. Yeah. Yeah. Carol? Yeah. What about Carol? Do you want to bring her in now? Yeah. Okay. Good. For the first few years after the stroke, my father spent his time writing out his life, exploring all the turns that had taken him to where he now found himself. On this journey through the past, he rediscovered Carol, a childhood friend. Carol saw past the aphasia, to my father as he was and as he is. I wouldn't want you back in full speech. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I love you as you are. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that so hard? 
I, I don't know. I just that I've, um, I've known him with aphasia. And I suppose if miraculously you ended up with full speech tomorrow, oh. I would be pleased and happy for us, but it would be a whole new learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just getting used to you writing in reverse and me reading in reverse. And as I've said, I've always loved charades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Good. My father recognizes that Carol is key to his ability to function in the world. And he knows that not everybody has a Carol in their lives. It's for those people he started the aphasia program. So you're writing down the name of one of the people in the group? Yes, yeah, and there are, uh, oh, uh, Had a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, um, like he can't say yes. Yes, he, And he can't say no. Yeah. You're mimicking somebody sitting at a table with their shoulders hunched, twiddling their thumbs their lips pursed. Now you're putting your shoulders down. They're sitting up a bit stronger. They're leaning in. <laughs> Good. So yeah. you're watching that process yes. of people actually becoming involved. Yes, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Good. It's strange to hear my dad thank me for speaking his words. He can't talk the way he once did. And that's been hard for both of us. But we've discovered a new language. And speaking it, my dad manages to say things I need to hear. Call um, me. And he's wrote your name, Steve Goff. Joy. What's that? Sorry, I can't see. Minute? Yes. Well, you just go minute to minute. Go. Cool. Joy, minute to minute. Good. Same philosophy. Yes. Teresa. Well, yeah. <laughs> I try to go minute to minute, but. Let's go. Still live with joy. Yes. <laughs> That's hard. I know. I know. In So Many Words, produced by Teresa Goff for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In So Many Words was also the winner of the Third Coast Festival Radio Impact Award. This piece not only had a huge impact on Stephen Goff's life, but after the piece aired, Goff's received over 100 emails from people with aphasia, their families, and caregivers. Over 5,000 CD copies of this story were made and distributed all over Canada. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. If you have words you want to send along, email us your comments and questions. We're at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Today we're going to hear some variations on a theme. Most experts agree that the South Island Kokako bird, a native of New Zealand, is now extinct. But one person is convinced otherwise. He's Reese Buckingham, he's a freelance ornithologist, and he's been searching for the bird for the last quarter century. Even though the last official sighting was in the 60s, Buckingham is unfazed. Or is he? 
Noted for its beautiful song, the elusive Kokako has taken hold of Buckingham's thoughts, and by all accounts, he's become a little obsessed about it. But there are times when even Buckingham himself wonders if all he is hearing in the forest is a gray ghost. Alan Cockle tracked through the woods with Buckingham on his quest for the Kokako and produced Grey Ghost for Radio New Zealand. This piece won an honorable mention from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in 2002. It's the resonance. The thing about the calls of South Island Kokako, unlike any other bird call I've heard in the world is they seem to be able to produce a natural resonance. The first time I heard it calling for such a long time was in the Capels Valley and Fraser Stream which is a tributary of the Capels Valley and Fjord. 25th of the 11th, 83, Top Capels Hut. It called for two minutes. I was virtually, I was hypnotised on the spot and then I said to myself, hey, wait a minute, mate, we're going to find this bird. So I raced towards where this incredible call was coming from and across the a river, and it, there was quite a flow of water that day. It was after a lot of rain, so the river was as noisy as anything, but these bongs were as clear as a bell above the noise of the river. And then it stopped. It stopped just as I crossed the river. Yeah, this is a genuine Tibetan bowl made from a number of metals. And just this movement of the stick that you use to make the sound. Just quietly take it around the circumference of this bowl. And the early Tibetans in the Bon religion used it for trance purposes, for the hypnotic purpose to quieten people's minds, basically. Hi, this is Rhys Buckingham, a freelance ornithologist from Mapua, Nelson, introducing a search for the rare endemic New Zealand bird, the South Island Kōkako. Today, the 17th of October 2000, we are beginning the expedition, which will cover a period of about three months and extend from the northern part of the South Island right through to the southwest corner, the bottom corner of Stewart Island. We are beginning here in the Operara Valley because of reports in the past five or so years. Quite close to this area I heard calls which I believed were from South Island Kōkāku. And importantly these calls were an answer to tapes recorded calls of North Island Kōkāku. You get this call when you've got the bird in the hand and you're swinging it upside down. <laughs> it's a degree more, I think, than the last in terms of alarm. This beautiful bird is a bluey grey colour, larger than a tui with a distinctly longish tail but its main feature 
one's close enough to see it. There's a pair of fleshy wattles. And to the early New Zealanders, the pioneers of ornithology, this bird was called the orange wattled crow. This is really the basis now of South Island Kōkākō survey. We try and do something just similar to what they're doing to survey areas with North Island Kōkākō. They're called walk-through surveys, where you just walk on a route, just playing tapes or whatever, and luring a Kōkākō. As you can see, nothing wants to answer it here, so we better move on. The first incidents where I thought, wow, Kokako may exist. I had spent so much time tramping through Fiordland. I was sceptical when I when people spoke of South Island Kokako or any other rare bird for that matter, because I'd spent lots of years of just tramping around. I'd heard nothing. And then at the head of Lake Monowai, and I think it was 1977, I heard this call last thing just before nightfall coming from the head of Lake Monowai. A beautiful ringing call and I'd never heard anything like it. It was like a cathedral bell endlessly tolling. I don't know how long the call went on but it was a long time. And my immediate thought then that must be Kokaku. What I could possibly do is look somewhere I'll have the original tape. Really valuable tapes. Original bomb chorus cables, here it is. Whether it'll still play or not, it's pretty old, let's try. Mm. Stop this. This is the right spot. I'm starting to listen to this tape. Let me go back. We've actually got another recording from the um, report from exactly the same site. Three years ago, oh, beautiful long-tailed cuckoo. It's not that loud. Oh, there it is. Just that now. It should be followed by an unusual double note. Yep, that's it. Both of those. That is the very original. That particular note is the one we want. You can string them together with a space between them if you like to make them sound like as they normally do in the field. This one just did this one note. It does that sometimes. Copy of alleged South Island Kōkāko calls. One 18th of October 2000, Glenroy River. This is where an intensive search for South Island Kokako has been carried out in the last five or six years. The main thrust of our effort was in setting up six automatic surveillance cameras. Unfortunately, we failed to get a photograph of South Island Kokako. Never mind, we heard some very interesting calls. Probably the most interesting was a single hollow, 
kind of note. It was very deep sounding and quite ghostly really. Alleged South Island Kokako. Two. So it was extremely mysterious. But after all, we're searching for a very, very mysterious bird. The first sighting was in Fraser Stream, and that was in 1983. I was a wee way off. The bird ran up this log. I've never seen a bird before or since run that way. It wasn't like anything else. It just ran. It didn't hop. just ran. And then it paused. It was a large bird. And I got out my binoculars. And then it just hopped away. It disappeared. But it called shortly after it disappeared. And I was fairly confident that was a kokaka. Single tong note, corker basin, dusk, 1st of December 1986. Twenty second of October. I took off quite early by myself today and headed to Moria Gate and from there up ridges southeast. Pretty wild, steep country. Not a iota of a sign of Kokako today. The draining times, the really psychologically draining times, are simply those times of long periods of times when nothing much happens. You're playing tapes and nothing responds. You're giving up. You're feeling, am I wrong even? Click call recorded at dawn, 3rd of December 1984. Did another sequence coming up. The sequence here, very close to the bird. Notice no coughs and splutters that Tui do. That last call is a local dialect to an area in northwest Nelson where there were many records of South Island Kokaka and in fact one of them should have been accepted. Two observers saw the bird, saw the orange wattles, heard the calls, described the calls exactly as we know them now. Confirmed sighting in my opinion 1972 so that's where if people ask me what's the last confirmed record of South Island Kokaka I think it's 1972 or 1971 anyway. Somewhere in Southland, someone had taken a photograph of this bird and it was taken at a, on a picnic table. The bird was on a picnic table. But there was no question or doubt that that bird, because Robert Fowler wouldn't make a mistake like that. He's one of our most prestigious and well-known ornithologists because he himself had seen the slide. In fact, the slide showed clearly the orange wattles, but this slide disappeared. We know that the photographer was called Blanchard because Robert Fowler referred it as the Blanchard slide and he said it completely disappeared. I think this guy Blanchard died and that he was trying to get hold of it from the estate. Mm -hmm. 
but it was never found. It's probably 1950s we're looking at now, but it would be the most recent photograph of South Island Korkaka. Maybe it's actually the only photograph. November 2000. Yesterday at 5.30, I decided to go for a wander up the valley and then up a ridge. It was on this ridge I played a tape of juvenile North Island Kokako and then heard, to my amazement, the most beautiful of all calls that Kokako can make. It's a series of cathedral-like bongs with an ambience and a resonance it's quite startling. Ethereal is probably the best way of describing these calls. And this bird was quite a long way away, probably 600, 800 metres away. But the ringing nature of the call was staggering. And it kept calling constantly about the rhythm of a cathedral bell tolling. The tuis and the bellbirds around were just going berserk. They had been quite quiet, everything had been very ordinary. But after this bird called in the distance, the tuis and the bellbirds started making alarm calls and general chattering. It was quite staggering. I tried to get recordings of all this, but the wind was just a bit too high and it, the microphone was too sensitive. So then, of course, after... Well, it probably the call lasted for three, four minutes, five minutes. It was a very long sequence. I got a compass bearing and headed off in that direction. But that was it. The bird had run out of steam. And I thought, well, this is big country in here. What chance have I of seeing a bird? That's probably only one or two left here in this area. So it's going to be a matter of patience. Just persevere. Keep coming back. And one day, surely, our luck must change. Thank goodness for John Kendrick in many respects, otherwise perhaps I wouldn't be still going now. The Wildlife Service sent him in as the consultant just to check how crazy I was. I think on Stuart Island. They sent was basically... This guy whose streets ahead of nearly everyone else in the country on bird calls, bush bird calls in particular. <laughs> and then they ended up, they didn't even believe John Kendrick. I just flown in with Bill Black on the helicopter in the little Anglin branch of the Freshwater River on Stewart Island. We called this particular one around camp, we called Ghost Bird. And John flew in by helicopter, it was raining quite heavily, so we went inside the tent. He was dead keen, very eager to hear the recordings I'd made. We were playing these tape recordings back in our tent. Reese, Young Adams and myself, the three of us making up the party. And as I was playing him the recordings in the tent... These interesting calls were peeling out from the recorder when all of a sudden... The bird outside responded right above the tent. An exact replica of what we were playing on the tape. John disappeared out of that tent so quickly. Burst through the tent. There was a sort of ripping noise. Right through our mosquito netting. And we looked up in the rimu. We looked. We walked around the rimu tree. And strained. We spent half an hour looking in the tree without sight or sound of this darn bird. 
that absolutely epitomizes the difficulty of finding the birds. You hear them, but you don't see them. This is one interesting thing about Kōkaku. You can actually identify it from the single feature that it can call loudly, very close, but you don't see it. It's often a good way of attracting little birds in, just squeaky note noises. There's a little tomtit, so we've got brown creepers, probably about six to eight brown creepers, silver eyes, tomtits, chaffinch, bowbird, tui. There's a blackbird singing and a grey warbler. It's a great spot. I started getting interested in birds before, I think, yeah, a little bit before I became convinced about Kokako. Oh, kaka. Or two, two. I can hear two. That time ago I was perhaps a wee bit cautious myself and wondering, well, is, is the evidence strong enough? Are these birds really here? And about, say, 18 years ago, by 18 years ago I was totally convinced and nothing's changed since then. Go 500 hours, 3, 12, 84. Gorgia Creek Terrace. When that bird is calling, when that bird starts calling out there, that bird is there, there's the excitement, the challenge begins. It's just when that bird is vocally active, searching for South Island Kokaka then becomes a real obsession. Five deer bark or bock call. 2nd of December 1984 6 bubble call recorded on the same evening 6. and then I set up my best stereo record system carry up the tree with the camera if you can visualize all this this was the setup Gary was just up there and I went away about 100 metres. Now, two of the calls I heard were unmistakable, unequivocal. They were the organ-like calls, definitely Kōkaku. All the rest of them, and the ones happened to be around the main record tape recorder, were oddities such as the steer bark, such as a loud clack. And I think there were some other odd calls that night too. But I heard these beautiful Kōkaku-like calls which didn't get recorded as well as one very hollow note right above my head. Really loud. It was about three times louder than the loudest Tui call I've ever heard. And yet Kerry, who's not very far away, didn't hear a single thing and it wasn't recorded. So one can assume only one thing. These calls were incredibly directional and probably those particular ones that weren't recorded were aimed at me. Kokako has quite short, rounded wings. Three, mew and wing beats. Little Mount Anglin branch of freshwater, November 1984. Often it's broken like...
Oh, sorry, yeah. That stew is defined. Mm -hmm. Perfectly done. How would you score it? 10 out of 10? Oh, did you do most of it? Granville State Forest, 20th of November 2000. Arrived two days ago. Already in camp were Ron Nilsson and his son Kit. Well, he said Dave to me, I think it's time to look for feathers, he said. And he looked down, instead of listening and looking up for a bird, he just looked down and suddenly this feather appeared. <laughs> just, and he brought it back. Ron Nilsson was here. Kōkāko, because they're uh, are very ancient birds, they've been in New Zealand for about 60 million years, and their feather structure is just a little different from other birds. So John Darby, who was uh, then at Otago Museum, took this feather and compared it with other feathers, and back came the... The reply that it looks as though that it's uh, South Island Kōkāgu. And uh, much later that particular feather were, went to Holland. Um, Possibly for DNA sequencing, yes. I'm not sure. And uh, was lost. So um, we can't even prove to this day that a feather was found on Stewart Island in 1987. I think if I add up, I would say three that I've got a high degree of certainty. Three that were Kokaka. And the, probably about another six other sightings which possibly were Kokaka. Probably my best, most certain sighting was on a very wet day. It was raining constantly. Not very heavy rain, but just medium rain and so I was wandering around and I carried a pair of binoculars but nothing else and I heard what I thought was the first tui I'd heard in this valley normally I'd hear this tui and walk on but something made me go to below where it was calling looked up and then I saw the bird and I still you know was absolutely astonished is when I looked up it wasn't a tui it was a large bird it was grey in colour. In fact, where the light was showing on it, it was a silvery grey in colour. It took off with slow wing beats and flew in a laboured flight out of sight. And as soon as it started singing again, I actually thought, I must have been mistaken. I couldn't have seen anything but a tui because, again, it was singing. I was just trying to think that it wasn't a kokako. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was a tui. And then it flew again right above my head and it was then there was no question. On the instant of the sighting, I knew it wasn't a tui. As soon as it starts singing, it has to be a tui. That's how the mind works, I think. But when it flew above my head, there was no question it was a kokaka. But every note was a mixture of tui and bowbird. If I'd recorded that call, no one would have believed me. No one. I had a really enjoyable job working with North Island Kōkāko, which was, I think, in the end ongoing for a couple of years or three years. And it was South Island Kōkāko season, so I just left that job and and just went voluntary looking for South Island Kōkāko. I considered it was really essential to try and save that bird from extinction. So, yes, I've missed out economically, but in other ways I don't think I've missed out anything. I've been privileged to be working 
with a bird that's just so remarkable. So I don't think I've missed out on anything. There's various ways of finding it. You can be idiots like me who wander in the bush playing tapes for 21 years and still haven't found the unequivocal evidence. Or you can go and talk to a number of different people in the hopes that one of them actually already has that unequivocal evidence. The first time I seen them, I went back a couple of times before I actually seen them again. And then after that I kept going back because I was working in that area. So now and then you get really good reports that you have to follow up. They were there late September 98. Looked and seen a bird that I hadn't seen before, way up in the tops of the tree. We get hundreds of reports. I try to interview when I've got time. Quite a large bird, bluey grey colour. And um, the bush where it is is quite dark. <clears throat> it was hard to pick out the first couple of times. Quite often I listen to the reports or even hear their evidence if they've got tape recordings, video, and it, and it turns out to be a tui or something common, but that's fine. But sometimes you get one that is different and kind of staggeringly different. But the noise that it made was like nothing I ever heard before. To me it's like a sort of a scary noise, ghosty noise. He was giving the descriptions of the birds he had seen and the calls he had heard. I thought, oh yes, it sounded like it was probably tui or kaka. So um, I just took it from there and just kept going back until I managed to catch the noise and tape record it. During the interview he brought this recording out and played it and I just about fell off the chair. There was just no question. It was unequivocal kokako organ song and not just one minute of it there'd be two or three minutes of full song full loud song absolutely definite when i tape recorded it and had people listen to the tape recorder no way it was a tui that call just mesmerized me i thought wow i hope he gives me a copy of this call i had copied it to give reese a copy and um okay, and what happens we lost the house. Four guys, the house, house burns down. We lost everything and the tapes actually went with it. <laughs> that was the unequivocal evidence of the presence of South Island after 21 years. <laughs> End of story. But um, they've got to be still there somewhere. There's a lot of scepticism and a lot of people here who don't believe us, but they haven't really been involved. Well, I've just got back from Weston, and Korkako 2000 will have to become Korkako 2001 now. But I need a little bit of a rest. Twenty-two years ago, we really didn't have very much more than we've got now. 
We haven't come up with a photograph. We haven't come up with a, a really good recording. And it's understandable. A lot of people are going to be sceptical and think that I'm just on a wild goose chase, a tangent. Just feeling that I've spent a lot of time on South Island Kokako and I am getting weary. It's, it's getting tiring. It's psychologically very demanding. You just sort of keep going, thinking, well, our luck's got to get better. Uh, good morning. We're walking up Alexander River in the Grey Valley, West Coast, Buller region. And it's the 13th of April, 2002. And we're having a search for South Island Kokako. Okay, do I believe in ghosts? I could say I believe Kokako. They're out there, all right. Grey Ghost, produced by Alan Cockle for Radio New Zealand. You're listening to ReSound. Even if the South Island Kokako is forever extinct, her cousins, common urban birds, sparrows, morning doves, robin, and the like, are out and singing like crazy. If we could be privy to their language, their calls, their songs, what would they be saying? Producer Larry Massett has a theory in this audio postcard. This is my backyard. It's a, a gorgeous fall day. You can hear birds and crickets and the odd airplane. It seems idyllic, but it's not. Do you recall how in The Remembrance of Things Past, Proust describes the arrival of the telephone in Paris in the 1920s? People were so excited by the new invention, he says, they'd phone each other just to check in. Hello, Alphonse, it is Marcel here. Where are you? Why, Marcel, I am in my house. Mon Dieu, where are you? Alphonse, I too am in my house. Incroyable. These were early days, of course. After a while, folks quit asking inane questions because the answer was always the same. Alphonse was home and so was Marcel. They got over it. They moved on. They evolved to talk about politics or the weather or women or the price of eggs. Unlike Marcel and Alphonse, we cell phoners are never in the same place when we check in. We are amazed to discover every 10 seconds that we've moved. So what? Wouldn't it be more remarkable to discover a lack of movement? 
suggesting one of us may have dropped dead? What is so irresistible about a location report? Maybe it's just human nature, or maybe it's something worse, much worse. Listen to these birds again, these nice backyard birds. Tweet, squat, twitter, tweet, tweet. They carry on sunrise to sunset. And you know what they're saying? They're going, hey, I'm over here, it's me, where are you? Hey, I'm over here, it's me, where are you? Here I am, I'm over here, it's me, where are you? Hey, I'm over here, it's me, where are you? Here I am, where are you? Where are you? Here I am. Hey, I'm over here, it's me, where are you? Hey, I'm over here, it's me, where are you? Here I am, here I am, are you still there? In other words, the birds are making cell phone calls. So are the crickets and the grasshoppers and the frogs and no doubt the bees and the ants. It's all location, location, location. Cell phones. A recent human discovery of cell phone technology is not an advance at all. We're slipping backwards, phoning down the line of evolution rather than up. We are chatting ourselves to the level of birds and bugs. The reasons for this alarming devolution are obscure. Maybe it's God's plan. Maybe it's low-carb diets or global warming or MTV. It doesn't matter. In five or ten years, we will no longer be able to ask the question, let alone answer it. Ask yourself this. Are you having dreams about flying? Do you feel an urge to head south in the winter? Would you rather spend a weekend reading Marcel Proust or snacking on sunflower seeds? Would you ever, ever consider dating anybody in the cast of Cats? Let me know. I'm here. Where are you? I'm here. Where are you? I'm here. I'm here. Where are you? Where are you? I'm here. Colors of a Feather Flocking Together, an audio essay by producer Larry Massett. You're listening to ReSound. In the Delta sun. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. It's the